And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is January the 12th, the 12th day of the new year. Only 353 days remaining to the year's over with. And January 12th has what a number of things that happened in history. 475, Byzantine Emperor, that's the Eastern Roman Empire. Zeno is forced to flee his capital to Constantinople, and his general, uh, Basiliscus, gains control of the empire. Can't trust anybody. Uh, we've got uh, 1616, the city of Belém in Brazil is founded on the Amazon River uh, by uh, Portuguese Captain Francisco Caldera. Castelo Branco. The uh, 1848, the Palermo, Palermo Uprising takes place in Sicily against the Bourbon Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. 1866, the Royal uh, Aeronautical Society is formed in London. The uh, Let's see. 1915, the U.S. House of Representatives rejects a proposal to require states to give women the right to vote. Why should we do that? It just leads to chaos and confusion, was the general uh, feeling of Congress. The uh, 1916, both Oswald Belke and Max Immelman. Achieved eight aerial victories each over Allied aircraft, and they got the German Empire's highest military award, the Pour Le Merite, as the first German aviators to earn it. <coughs> the uh, 1932, Hattie Carraway becomes the first woman elected to the U.S. Senate. 1942, saw the President Roosevelt create the National War Labor Board. Uh, 1945, the Red Army begins the Vistula Oder Offensive against the German Army. 1955, a Martin 202 and a Douglas DC-3 collide over Boone County, Kentucky. Fifteen people are killed. 1986, how the space shuttle disaster. Uh, Columbia disintegrated and on board was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson uh, he was a payload specialist in other words he and his camera took a lot of pictures unfortunately that uh, things didn't go the way that they were supposed to and everybody on board was killed then we've got uh, the Taal volcano in 2020 and the Philippine erupts Kills 39 people. Well, there are so many um, mysteries in this world, it's hard to know where to start. But yesterday, we started talking about Beyond Roswell, which is a book I wrote, which is uh, becoming a TV series. 
we have finished the first season. Now the next crash that didn't get much discussion was in Kingman, Arizona. Now the case of the Kingman um, UFO retrieval was later brought to the public attention by Raymond Fowler, UFO researcher in June of 73. See, in the UFO field, like most other fields, there are the workhorses who get out there and get their hands dirty, and the dilettantes who strut and talk about how wonderful they are. The um, In regard to the Kingman uh, retrieval, it, uh, an engineer took preliminary measurements to assess the momentum of a crashing craft, Measure measurements useful to any reverse engineering efforts. The engineer who brought this story to light was Arthur Stansel, previously known by the, the pseudonym of Fritz Werner. Now, Stansel graduated from Ohio University in 1949 and was first employed by the Air Material Command at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, as a mechanical engineer. His job was testing Air Force aircraft engines. Dr. Eric Wang, who was suspected of leading a reverse engineering team on alien craft, headed the installations division within the Office of Special Studies where um, Arthur Stansel worked. Now, as I said, the case of the Kingman UFO errors uh, retrieval was uh, brought to the public attention by Raymond Fowler. The, um, the engineer who actually brought the story to light was, in fact, Arthur Stansel. The, uh, he signed a legal affidavit vouching to the honesty of his testimony, which had been released by the Ray Fowler and UFO magazine in April of 1976. Stansel said he was loaned out to the Atomic Energy Commission and was designated as a project engineer on some atomic bomb test referred to as uh, Operation Upshot Knothole. The location of these tests was at Frenchman's Flats in the southern end of the Nevada test site. Stansel went on to work for Raytheon in Sudbury, Massachusetts in the early 70s on avionic systems. And it's not known as to whether he had further involvement with alien technology, especially since it's likely he worked for Dr. Wang at some point. And Wang was an Austrian-born graduate of the Vienna Technical Institute and close associate of Victor Schauberger, who had, uh, according to the legend, developed a concept for a flying disc and worked on the German flying disc program as early as 1941 for Germany. Wang taught structural and meteorological engineering at the University of Cincinnati from 43 to 52 and supposedly examined some of the recovered crash discs and compared them to the vehicles tested in the alleged German V-7 program but found the retrieved craft to be different in nature. The theory, or at least the belief, was that many of the crash discs were actually uh, created by the Germans uh, during World War II. And were uh, there's long been a story. There was a German uh, colony established on the moon, and even though no one wants to admit it, there's been a lot of um, research done to determine if, in fact, any of that was true. 1949, uh, Stansel became. Uh, I'm sorry, Wang became director of the Department of Special Studies at Wright Patterson. 
where he worked long hours in cooperation with scientists from the Office of Naval Research and Dr. Vannevar Bush and others from the Research and Development Board. Rang relocated his research from Wright-Patterson to Kirtman Air Force Base in Albuquerque. He died December 4, 1960. Now, curiously, Leonard Stringfield, who reopened the case in his work on UFO crash retrievals, mentioned testimony he had gotten from a naval intelligence officer who had seen bodies from a crash that occurred in the Arizona desert in 1953. He actually viewed the bodies at Wright-Patterson when the crates arrived at night aboard a DC-7, five crates in all, three of which contained little humanoids about four feet tall. The heads were hairless and disproportionately large with skin that looked brown under the hangar lights, wearing uh, tight-fitting dark suits. It's been suggested by some researchers that these bodies could have come from the crash mentioned by Stansel, and that's the, the crash in Kingman, Arizona. Uh, engineer Bill Uhouse claims there was a crash of a Ebens aircraft near Kingman in 1953, and four entities survived. That would have been six years after the more famous Roswell crashes and retrievals of what were known as interplanetary craft of unknown origin. In Kingdom, according to U-House, uh, two disabled Ebens and, uh, and two more that were in good condition were now uh, Ebens, E-B-E-N-S, are actually uh, a designation for uh, biological entities, uh, extraterrestrial biological entities to be exact. And uh, that's because we really don't know where they came from. Now, the two non-humans were in good condition, that were in good condition, were allowed to re-enter the craft, and the disabled entities were taken to an unspecified medical facility. He also stated the recovery crew entered the craft to inspect it, came down with a mysterious sickness, and the craft was then loaded aboard a trailer and taken to the Nevada test site north of Las Vegas. Now, some implied that uh, these uh, extraterrestrial biological entities were a class of EBEs with certain distinct physical characteristics and was said to be working with our military scientists and engineers on various projects. According to uh, one source of information, no language interface with the EBE existed in 53, so a series of symbols were shown to test his reactions. And some symbols look like letters, and others are geometric shapes. First symbol, the EBE, EBEs pointed to uh, looked like a J. Other was an inertial bar that looked like a rod. So the humans call this particular EBE J-rod. Um, now there's a lot more support for the existence of specialized crash retrieval units that would support the existence of a specialized organization that deals with UFOs and aliens. There have been legends and rumors and whispers that we have uh, almost an entire military that uh, we don't ever see. And their job is dealing with um, UFOs and their occupants. One researcher uh, said there were only two seats in the craft. Uh, 
And as always, there are more questions or no one to question about these events unless somebody else who has a participant steps forward with their testimony. As long as nobody talks, you can't find out anything. Stanson was a participant and didn't step forward with an affidavit. The Vietnam commander who told the story in 64 is an interesting lead. Of course, if additional witnesses step forward, the case would appear to be even more serious and solid. Um, there are indications of another Arizona crash in 1953, April 18th to be exact from which the three bodies mentioned in Springfield's story uh, might have come. According to one researcher, strange as it seems, it was during the 50s that various aircraft companies started researching uh, pro uh, research projects on the control of gravity and electrogravitational propulsion. And it's possible these projects constituted some of the first reverse engineering projects on extraterrestrial propulsion systems. But frankly, today, we haven't seen any positive results. Of course, Air Intelligence had to try reverse engineering and maybe promoted such research projects. It was bound to fail. To understand such advanced flying machine uh, would require a full understanding of the physics and technology to manufacture the parts. And if you provided the space shuttle to Orville Verbal Wright, they'd have learned nothing useful from it. Unless you would have explained the physics and provided the technology um, to the Wright brothers. Just something to think about. If you gave a caveman a 9mm pistol, is he going to be able to load it and fire it? I would tend to doubt it. Well, let's talk about you know, the alleged flying saucer crash in Kingman, Arizona. The full story came from a casebook of a UFO investigator by Raymond Fowler. It came out in 1981. And in 73, I came even closer to documenting the reality of crashed UFOs with a signed affidavit from the alleged member of the U.S. Uh, Air Force investigating team. His name was uh, given in all the reports as Fritz Werner. Well, that was not his real name. And according to his affidavit, I do solemnly swear that during a special assignment with the U.S. Air Force on May 21, 1953, I assisted in the investigation of a crashed unknown object in the vicinity of Kingman, Arizona. This object was constructed of an unfamiliar metal which resembled brushed aluminum. It impacted 20 inches into the sand without any sign of structural damage. Oval, about 30 feet in diameter. An entryway hatch had been vertically lowered and opened about three and a half feet high and one and a half feet wide. He said he was able to talk briefly with someone on the team who uh, did look inside. He saw two swivel seats, an oval cabin, and a lot of instruments and displays. A tent pitched near the object sheltered the dead remains of the only occupant of the craft. It was about four feet tall, dark brown complexion, two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, and a small round mouth. He was wearing a silvery metallic suit and wore a skull cap of the same, uh, the same type of material. Didn't have a face covering and wasn't wearing a helmet. And uh, his signature was notarized on, uh, and witnessed June 7, 1973. Now, according to 
Fowler, he watched as Mr. Werner carefully read and signed the final piece of documentation uh, to a 65-page report that Fowler had prepared for the NICAP. His attempts to substantiate uh, Werner's incredible story put him in contact with the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, Stanford Research Institute, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, former Project Blue Book personnel, and a number of people within the military-industrial complex. And although no additional witness could be found, the peripheral names, positions, tests, dates, and places mentioned within the the uh, affidavit all check out exceptionally well. Mr. Werner had kept his bizarre experience a closely guarded secret for almost exactly 20 years. And if it's true, his story indicates that the physical recovery of manned UFOs has been kept secret from the American people for over 20 years. Between June 1949 and January 1960, Fritz uh, Werner held several engineering and management positions at Wright-Patterson and near Dayton. And uh, if you read the the affidavit um, and um, completely, you get a completely different idea of exactly what's been going on. Now Werner confided a year after his experience. With the UFO, he was assigned to serve Blue Book as an official consultant. And he said he sympathized with the Air Force secret handling of the UFO problem. He didn't have an answer regarding where they originated, and he felt they probably still don't. He said though the Air Force did believe the UFOs were interplanetary vehicles and didn't want to create a national panic. And in response to questions about the UFO propulsion system, he said uh, we all had our guesses as to what it was it, time, uh, Werner said he happened to have contact with a professor in Germany from a very famous university. The Air Force had, been, had a contract with them to study anti-gravity. I mean, at the time, they didn't call it that exactly, but that's what the propulsion system was, which you could use the Earth's magnetic field as a form of propulsion. They were able to um, fly with a lot of power and produce an anti-gravity machine. Very impractical, and as far as he knew, still is impractical, but they still hope to get it perfected one day. Now, Warner's credentials were certainly impressive, and Fowler checked out his professional resume by calling former employers doing a careful character check. And neither the two former Blue Book officials he talked to would confirm the, the Kingman incident. One asked, where's the object now? And the other got very nervous when he mentioned uh, Dr. Eric Lang's office of special studies. He asked to be left alone and said he wanted to live out his life in privacy. Which says to me that there's a whole lot more involved than meets the eye. Now, the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington and in Nevada both confirmed the dates and names of the tests at the Werner mentioned. He also confirmed the name of the test director, Dr. Ed Dahl, the chief of the Special Operations Studies as the technical and scientific um, monitor for the project. Of course, further investigation revealed Dr. Wang had already died. 
and he tried to track Dr. Dahl to the Stanford Research uh, Institute, but their personnel department didn't know where he was at. They thought he had died as well. Through correspondence with the Mojave County historian, Fowler found out that Kingman was an unlikely place for the incident to have occurred. Four-hour drive at night in a bus with blacked-out windows would have conveyed the investigating team to any number of places. The historian felt that the vast range controlled by Luke Air Force Base southwest of Phoenix was a more likely spot for the crash site. He stated it was a real desert area with packed sand, just as Werner described. Now, there were a few inconsistencies. in uh, Werner's story. But most appeared to be the result of just simple memory lapses. I mean, after 20 years, we'd all have trouble remembering various details. Former employers and professional acquaintances held Mr. Uh, Werner in high esteem. Everybody described him as a highly competent, technical, and moral individual. Probably found that he holds two bachelor's degrees in mathematics and physics and a master's in engineering. Also a member of a number of professional organizations, such as the American Association for the Advancement of Science and numerous civic groups. Only out of the ordinary activities in his personnel record was a keen interest in parapsychology and past involvement with other professional people in psychic experiments. Well, he was asked to pin down the exact date of the crash and he mentioned he might have written something in his diary about the time after a search he found the diary that he'd kept meticulously in those days and when it was examined by Fowler he had no doubts it was uh, contemporary to the time it was supposed to be the obviously age page from May 20th 1953 uh, said spent most of the day on Frenchman's flat surveying cubicles and supervising welding of plate girder bridge sensors that which cracked after the last shot drank brew in the evening read and got funny call from Dr. Dahl about 10 o'clock he was to go on a special job the next day well from the May 21st entry it set up at 7 worked most of the day on Frenchman with cubicles Later that, uh, later from, uh, that she's feeling better now, thank goodness. Letter from Bet. Got picked up at Indian Springs Air Force Base for a job. Can't write or talk about. Well, tantalizing as this might be, there's still no proof that the crash actually happened. How many would believe the government were to state that studies had been made of crashed UFO vehicles and occupants? I mean, as a lot of folks still believe our trips to the moon were simulated in Hollywood studios. And unfortunately, there is supporting information for that. Now, and while there's been much fanfare about the incident at Roswell, it's far from being the only incident of its kind, though most weren't received with as much fanfare as in Roswell. 1974, there was another event that resulted in the crash of a private plane and the crash of what was purported to be a UFO just south of El Paso, Texas. This incident is referred to as the Mexican Roswell. It took place about 40 miles south of the Texas-Mexican border. This is referred to as the Kayami crash. It involved a mid-air collision between a UFO and a small plane 
according to the story, that plane took off from the El Paso International Airport and collided with the UFO. Now, some conspiracy theories believe that the UFO was retrieved by United States Rapid Response Team assembled by military and intelligence agencies. You see, Kayami's in the desert of Chihuahua. There's also the same desert surrounds Roswell, New Mexico. It's about 40 miles from the Texas border. On Sunday, August 25, 1974, U.S. Air Defense Art Radar at the United States Naval Air Station in Corpus Christi picked up an object that was at first assumed to be a meteor. The object was 200 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico, heading for Corpus Christi. Radar operators were baffled as their instruments showed the object was reaching speeds of 2,500 miles an hour and flying at an altitude of 75,000 feet. Now, at that period of time, jet aircraft could barely reach 2,200 miles per hour and rarely flew above 50,000 feet. After being alerted by the Corpus Christi Naval Air Station, other radar sites began to monitor this strange visitor, among them the long-range radar installation at Ellington Air Force Base near Houston, Texas. Lackland Air Force Base at San Antonio, Texas, and the FAA radar facility at Oilton, Texas. And there was some initial concern that it might be a ballistic missile, as well as the question of how it got within 200 miles of the U.S. coast without being seen. Uh, however, there seemed to be a little excitement until the object being tracked made a 35-degree change in course that alerted the U.S. Air Force the object being tracked was not a meteor, was not a ballistic missile. An air defense um, alert was called, but before any form of interception could be scrambled, the object turned and flew into Mexican territory out of the U.S. airspace. Within 20 minutes of crossing into Mexican airspace, the mysterious object disappeared from the radar. 52 minutes after the disappearance of this unknown object, civilian radio traffic indicated civilian aircraft had uh, gone down in that same area where the mystery object has disappeared from radar. Trying to piece together what happened, it's clear that uh, at approximately 10.10 p.m., the radar image veered to the west and entered Mexican airspace about 40 miles south of Brownsville, descending from 75,000 feet to about 45,000 feet as it reached landfall. And as it went further inland, it began to descend in stages. At a speed of 2,000 miles an hour, the visitor to Earth's skies flew northwest, crossing the Mexican states of Tamaulipas, Nuevo Leon, Coahuila, and Chihuahua, seemingly avoiding major population areas and military installations. It did come very close to the famous La Zona de Silencio, or the Zone of Silence, which has been a scene of a number of very bizarre sightings and UFO encounters over the years. Before we move on, it's important you understand exactly what the zone of silence actually is. A zone of silencio, the zone of silence is a patch of desert near the Boston de Pompimi in Mexico, in a place known as the Trino Vertex. First reported incident related to the zone of silence occurred in the 30s when a pilot by the name of Francisco Sarabia was flying over the area and claimed his instruments went wild and his radio stopped working. Later in the 1970s, a great deal of attention was drawn to the area when a faulty American missile was fired from White Sands Missile Base in New Mexico. The missile went off course and crashed. Some say it was pulled into that particular region. The Mexican government allowed U.S. Air Force officials to investigate the crash at the site, which is uh, 
when the strangeness of the area really became apparent. Discovered that no signals of any sort were able to penetrate the area, including radio and satellite signals. And that was due to local magnetic fields that created a dark zone, which attributes to the popular name of the site. Research has since been done at the site, and the Mexican government's even constructed a research complex said to be studying the unusual local habitat and wildlife. Theorists speculate the government's studying more than it's admitting, and there are plenty of anomalies to research inside the zone. One of the many unusual observable properties in this area is a high level of magnetic uranium deposits to which scientists attribute electromagnetic pulses that are said to be the source of the disrupted signals. If you're on the radio with somebody and you step across an imaginary line in the sand, you suddenly lose all contact until you step back across that line. You know, the area is also a hotbed for meteorites. The remnants of which scientists theorize exude magnetic properties that may explain why so many iron-rich objects from space end up in the zone of silence. There are other unexplainable activity of this nature reported there, such as the area's reputation for strange lights, UFO sightings, and alien encounters. Some even believe it's been used in the past, and even in the present, as a portal for aliens to reach the Earth. Researchers cited tales of strange uh, ranchers have cited tales of strange lights and odd strangers that appear from nowhere and claim to come from above. In fact, the same three blonde strangers have often been spotted by multiple witnesses in different areas, but at almost the same time. Also, the witnesses of some of the unexplainable flying objects, some being described as disc-like, that were thought to have landed in the zone, found physical evidence in the form of burn brush and vegetation at the touchdown sites. On a more interesting note, the zone of silence is geographically parallel with the Egyptian pyramids and the Bermuda Triangle and located just north of the Tropic of Cancer. Scientists serving at the Mexican Research Center coined the name for the Sea of Tetris because it lies at the bottom of what was an ocean millions of years ago. So the question becomes, can any of this explain the numerous strange incidents that take place here? No concrete evidence has been found to support the claims of extraterrestrial activity in the area, though there are undoubtedly several occurrences that can't be explained. If the zone uh, has a rare magnetic pull, one has to speculate the extent of the effect it has on the happenings in the area. Could this possibly be another Bermuda Triangle uh, with the same type of activity? It certainly exhibits much of the same behavior. And add to that the countless testaments of uh, extraterrestrial sightings, and this area is certainly a hotbed of activity that requires considerable exploration. Now, in looking back at the purported collision, this mystery craft that was spotted by radar was over the northern part of the zone of silence when everybody's surprised it simply vanished. Number of witnesses to the event believed the mystery object just dropped below the radar's horizon. They believed it was still flying, but it was below radar as a result of uh, many radar operators believed it was uh, case closed. But that really was not the case. At about 9.30 p.m. that same evening, a Cessna 180 had taken off from Air Paso International Airport. The Cessna, Cessna which is a Mexican registry, and its passengers... Uh, were still unknown, crossed the international border into Mexico. 
According to existing records, the Cessna 180 was flying at about 150 miles an hour at an altitude of between 3,000 and 7,000 feet. About 200 miles southwest of El Paso, Texas, the plane flew over the mountain range in northern Mexico and was on a course toward the Cuyami, Chihuahua, within 50 miles of the Mexican border and only a short distance from Presidio, Texas. The plane's last reported position was about 100 miles northeast of Chihuahua City. And at about 10.30 p.m., that plane suddenly vanished from radar and was presumed to have crashed into the city of Cuyami. Though it was suggested the missing civilian aircraft might have been the mystery object that had been tracked on radar, additional research made it clear the missing aircraft that had departed the El Paso International Airport to fly to Mexico City could not have been the object being tracked over the Gulf of Mexico. U.S. authorities presumed a collision took place between the civilian aircraft and the mystery object as both disappeared in the same area at the same time. Based on the monitored radio traffic, satellite feedback, and images from covert flyovers, it was believed that the Mexican authorities found the missing plane in the mountainous region near Coyami, Chihuahua, Mexico. And since the crash had been so late at night, the Mexican first responders made no move to reach the crash site until early on the morning of Monday, August 26th. Now, many have tried to trace the path that our aircraft took to aid in reaching the purported crash site. Since it's known that the U.S. helicopters that recovered the crash disk entered Mexican airspace just north of Candelaria, Texas, most believe the recovery site was in the desert just to the west of Candelaria and just north of Coyami. Now, the Mexican authorities knew that a plane had crashed in route from El Paso, but it's not likely that they knew about the crashed UFO. Wasn't until... 8 o'clock in the morning, on that morning, the Mexican rescue efforts began. Spotter planes circled the mountains around Coyami looking for evidence of the wreckage, and it probably came from one of the two major bases of the Fuzza area Mexicana, located in Chihuahua City. Then there were a number of reports that a second plane was on the ground a few miles from the first. Subsequent reports stated the second plane was circular shaped, apparently in one piece, although that was, there was visible damage. U.S. intelligence was closely monitoring what was taking place, as you might guess. The El Paso Intelligence Center, located at Fort Bliss since 1974, was assigned to monitor the U.S.-Mexico border and took a close interest in what was happening outside Kayami. Also keeping an eye on what was happening at the crash site were one or more keyhole spy satellites. Um, about 10.30... That morning, U.S. monitors heard a Mexican pilot report finding the wreckage of a small plane. He described it as almost destroyed. In short, the U.S. intelligence listeners heard what they had been waiting for. The Mexican pilot radioed back to his base. He'd found a second downed plane just a few miles from the wreckage of the first. And as I said, he described this second plane as being nearly intact and circular in shape with a silver metallic finish. Now, this report resulted in the U.S. military intensifying its intelligence activity and shifting assets for what might be an incursion into Mexico to take possession of the downed circular craft. Soon after that, um, we offered to um, assist the Mexican military in uh, recovery efforts, and they uh, declined our assistance. And soon after that decline, 
The Mexican military clamped a radio silence on all search efforts, and any contacts to them uh, were met with responses that ranged from initial claims of ignorance of any crash to eventual total refusal to cooperate. CIA and possibly as many as two additional government agencies immediately began forming a recovery team with all required military support. They were going to take the disc by force if it was deemed necessary. In fact, CIA personnel at Fort Bliss within a short period of time busily putting together their response team. However, it has to be noted that the speed the special team and its equipment were assembled suggests this was either a well-rehearsed exercise or that such an interdiction into foreign countries after purported UFO crashes had been done before. There have long been reports that U.S. intelligence agencies maintain rapid de- deploy recovery teams sitting on go, so to speak, for quick missions such as the Kayami crash retrieval. And shortly after the report there was a crashed UFO not far from the crash of the Inside a small plane, a military convoy left a Mexican army base at Ohinga, located about 60 miles from the crash site. Reports reveal the convoy consisted of about 24 soldiers and a number of vehicles to include a large flatbed. More reports have claimed that at this point, our military offered to come help the Mexican first responders retrieve both aircraft, but the Mexican authorities declined to accept the offer. And it was reported that there was communication held at the highest levels, but the Mexican authorities were adamant they wanted no USO, U.S. involvement. One reason for U.S. involvement was said to be the fact that the Cessna had left U.S. airspace. And the Mexican authorities were hesitant to allow U.S. involvement and insisted they knew nothing about a crashed uh, second aircraft. They reported our operation was just a routine recovery of a crashed aircraft that had nothing to do with the U.S. Now, American military scouts were sent in under cover of darkness to monitor the activities of the Mexican recovery effort and reported back that the crashed UFO had been loaded onto a low boy for moving to a more secure site. Yet circular aircraft were being escorted back to the Mexican military base by a large convoy of support vehicles and armed Mexican troops. They were taking no chances. Apparently the Mexican military uh, didn't want anything to happen to this mysterious craft before they could study it. However, the scouts reported back that something was clearly wrong and the first responders were in apparently serious trouble. According to one report, the UFO had two holes in its hull, which may have released contaminants into the surrounding atmosphere. Whatever may have been the cause, there was no doubt something was having a detrimental effect on the Mexican convoy. Clearly, the Mexican soldiers hadn't used any protective gear when they handled both the aircraft as well as the surrounding debris and Something about the craft was causing the Mexican soldiers to become ill, visibly ill. Intelligence personnel watching on their monitors and listening to the reports of the Mexican military taking the UFO out of reach were glum. In spite of the problems they were experiencing, the Mexican first responders regarding that craft and making no efforts to distance themselves from the mysterious craft. And then something totally unexpected happened. Satellite photos, monitors, and altitude aircraft fly over uh, materials from that day indicate the convoy with the disc had stopped on the side of the access road before reaching any inhabited areas or major roads. No visible movement, a number of the vehicles had their doors open. These initial reports were followed by ground intelligence that a number of Mexican military personnel were lying on the road. 
U.S. military recon intelligence showed no activity on the convoy, and in fact, there were numerous signs of that a number of the Mexican military were either dead or very ill. Previously heavy radio contact between the Mexican unit manning the convoy and its headquarters had ceased completely. Well, not wanting to miss another opportunity to obtain the desk, officials at Fort Bliss, Texas authorized our waiting recovery teams to move out. U.S. recovery team, believed to be 15 in number and said to have been based at a secret airfield near Airpine, Texas, were fully outfitted with hazmat suits before they left on their recovery mission. And flying nape of the earth to avoid Mexican radar, the unit, believed to consist of four Bell UH-1 Huey helicopters and one Sikorsky heavy lift sea stallion crossed into Mexican airspace, arriving at the site of the Mexican convoy at 1653, 40 miles inside Mexico, and by 1714 hours, the recovered disc was on its way to U.S. territory. Now, the disc was lifted off the low boy attached to a cargo cable to the sea stallion helicopter. And very concerned regarding the possibility of contamination, having no idea what had killed the Mexican military personnel before leaving the convoy site, the U.S. military recovery team gathered together the Mexican vehicles and the bodies of the Mexican military, the pieces of the civilian light plane involved in the mid-air collision, as well as the bodies of the passenger and pilot of the light plane, and destroyed it all with high explosives. When U.S. military personnel left the area, all the vehicles that comprised the convoy were burning fiercely. It's believed the team used MK-54 SADM suitcase nuke to destroy both the trucks and the bodies of the dead Mexican military. And many agree this would have been a logical step to neutralize any lethal biological agents that might have been released from the crashed UFO. According to a few people who claim to remember the event, the disc-shaped craft was taken directly to a secured hangar at Biggs uh, Army Airfield at Fort Bliss. And after some initial study, it was eventually transferred to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Another report claims the disc was uh, either transferred after that to another unnamed base or taken directly to this unknown base from a research facility located outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Due to the possibility of contamination, taking the craft to some of the state-of-the-art decontamination facilities under the control of the CDC would have been a very safe bet. However, it would also have taken a possible biosafety hazard into one of the most populated areas of the country. So that is a negative in regard to that particular theory. And what happened to the impact material debris supposed to be analyzed as a suspected metal fusion of the plane and the UFO has never been re uh, revealed. And still another report is that due to the possibility of contamination, the disk may have been taken to a classified site high in the Davis Mountains near Alpine, Texas. There have long been rumors about secret airfields in the mountains above Alpine. Interviews with several longtime residents revealed that as kids they'd observed many helicopters making regular trips into some of the more remote areas above Alpine. So complete was the veil of secrecy about this crash that for almost 20 years not a word leaked out about the crash. It's become known as the Kayama UFO incident. First came to light in 1992 when a, an account of the case was mailed anonymously to a member of number of UFO researchers in the U.S. and Europe. The document was titled "Research Findings in the Chihuahua Disc Crash" and was addressed to all Denib team members from JS. Washington D.C. Elaine Douglas of the UFO group Operation Right to Know got a copy and forwarded it to Leonard Stringfield who included in his 1994 publication, UFO Crash Retrieval, Search for Proof in a 
Hall of Mirrors, acknowledges the first UFO researcher to give serious credence to reports of crashed UFOs. Stringfield wrote that the Kiyami incident was authoritatively written using correct military terminology and of note and unlike a hoax, draws a line between so-called hard evidence and that's the, that is speculative. After the report surfaced in 92, the story of the Kiyama UFO incident was a dormant until 2005 when the producers of the cable TV series UFO Files, shown on the History Channel, created a show based on the report. The show, which was called, appropriately enough, Mexico's Roswell, was one of several episodes about UFO crashes similar to the 1947 Roswell UFO incident. Written by Vincent Kralovich and Scott Miller, Mexican Roswell, uh, Mexico's Roswell was aired uh, December 12, 2005, and featured commentary by veteran UFO in investigator Ruben Uriate, the director of the Northern California chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. Uriate had previously investigated UFO cases in Mexico and was Buffon's liaison to Mexico civilian UFO groups. A little bit of investigation with people who were at Biggs Field. Um, revealed that the secret airfield in our airplane for which the recovery team was dispatched may well have been Marfa Army Airfield or the Presidio County Airport now, a World War II training facility. This abandoned airfield located in the high desert of West Texas, about 200 miles southeast of El Paso. Uh, however, though it's said to be abandoned, all the runways, taxiways, and the ramps of this huge airfield still exist and in a fairly good uh, condition. Many of the wartime buildings were sold at auction and moved to Marfa or nearby Alpine. Slowly, the West Texas deserts reclaiming the large air base with tall grass being found in the parking apron with deteriorating concrete evident on the taxiways and the runways. The original main entrance road still exists, but it's gated and locked. A small brass memorial plaque can be found at the room on the remains of the World War II adobe block entrance to the post. I mean, what better place to base a secret UFO recovery team than in an abandoned airfield that's secured, has no visitors, but still has fully functional taxiways and runways? I have to ask, if it's not in use, why are they still fully functional? Makes no sense. There's long been rumors of small operational units being based at supposedly abandoned military bases across the country. It is interesting to note that the unit that was sent into Mexico was fully equipped to deal with a potential um, hazardous situation. And the existence of this unit is supported by numerous reports of highly classified recovery units attached to the American military. I was familiar with a few when I served on active duty. There was even one or two that I never could figure out what they were doing in South America when I was there. Well, there's been another story about a crash at Aztec. That everyone has insisted, especially the dilettantes, is a nothing more than a hoax. You know, much is made of the 1947 crash at Roswell, New Mexico, but the stories emanating from the town of Aztec, New Mexico, of a crash said to have happened there in 48, were normally written off by most UFO researchers as part of a massive hoax. Of course, they can't show any motive for the hoax, but they're smarter than you are, so they know it's a hoax. What most UFO researchers seem to have overlooked is that the same man who publicized the crash at Roswell, Stanton Friedman, studied the research conducted by Scott Ramsey and Suzanne Ramsey and came to the conclusion that a crashed UFO was removed from Aztec and taken away for study by the government. 
Now, Aztec is a small town near Farmington, New Mexico, located in the Four Corners region of the state. The story of the UFO crash at Aztec actually begins on the night of March 25, 1948. On this particular night, one of the early witnesses, New Mexico police officer Emmanuel Sandoval, spotted one of the familiar glowing disks in the night sky. But this disk wasn't exhibited the usual traits of high speed and agile movement, but rather it was wobbling as if it had trouble staying in the air. According to the story told by Officer Sandoval, the UFO was flying very low and slow, barely cleddling the canyons as Sandoval pursued the craft toward the Four Corners area in New Mexico in his car. It appeared to the officer the UFO was looking for a location so it could attempt to land. He meant to be there when that UFO touched down. Valentino Archuleta was a rancher in the area. When he left his home early that morning to begin his daily chores, he said he heard what sounded like a sonic boom. Looked up and saw what he later described as a flying saucer that seemed to be out of control. It was descending toward a mesa across the road from his ranch. And he said the flying saucer scraped the face of the mesa, giving off sparks, but it remained airborne as it headed off into the in a northern, northerly direction. As it flew out of sight, he headed for the closest telephone, which was located at the Blanco Mercantile, a nearby general store. And in spite of the early hour, there was a door that was always unlocked at the store, allowing local customers access to the phone. Those were the days when you were pretty sure your neighbors weren't going to steal from you. Among the calls Valentine made were three to Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. Two of the calls were unsatisfactory, but on the third call, he talked to somebody who seemed very interested in what he had to say. The person who answered the phone asked him to repeat his story in some detail as if taking notes. And Valentine also... Um, asked to be called back with information about what the object might be. Of course, he never heard anything from the Air Force, but it does show the Air Force was aware of the crash even before the, the craft actually slammed into the ground. Though those who firmly believe that there's no such thing as flying saucers are quick to start shooting holes in the Aztec crash story, there's certain pieces of evidence that are still visible today. These evidence are normally just simply ignored by the debunkers, if you can't explain something, ignore it. For example, Valentine reported the craft scrapped, scraped a mesa on his property before flying off to the north. Even today, anybody who cares can go to the mesa in question and see the deep marks left in the rocky face of the of that uh, mesa. However, no one's taken the trouble to thoroughly investigate these marks as it takes permission from the Archibetta family to even reach the site as it's on their property. So much for the so-called thorough investigations the dilettantes claim to always make. There were claims a mesa was made of sandstone and therefore there's no aircraft, even if it hit the mesa, could have produced the reported sparks. But a thorough examination of the mesa would show it was comprised of both sandstone as well as hard volcanic rock. A metal craft hitting the hard volcanic rock would most definitely give off sparks, as it was reported. Columnist... Uh, Frank Scully was the first writer to alert and inform the public that a disabled flying saucer had landed on the Mesa 12 miles northeast of Aztec, New Mexico. Now, Aztec is a small northern New Mexico town near Farmington, best known for its brush with the unknown. In his best-selling book, Behind the Flying Saucers, Scully claimed that a saucer landed near Aztec on the morning of March 25th. 1948 was observed by locals and oil field workers. Like Farmington, Aztec is a was and is an oil town. 
Two employees of the El Paso Oil Company, Doug Nolan and Bill Ferguson, were on their way to the oil fields when they saw the resulting blaze near the oil field drip tanks at the base of Hart Canyon Mesa. And due to the location of the fire in reference to the oil drip tanks, the two decided to go to the, fi- uh, to the fire to determine if it was going to spread in their direction. As a result, these two oil workers were among the first witnesses to get close to this craft. In fact, these two men even climbed on top of the crashed UFO and examined it thoroughly. According to two men, they found a very large, metallic, lens-shaped craft sitting silently on top of the mesa. They later described the craft as being made of burnished aluminum, not the highly polished aluminum like that of an airplane. Skin was very smooth with no noticeable seams or if it's bolts or weld marks. Nolan remarked it looked almost as if it had been molded. Nolan also said he and Ferguson worked their way over to the top of the craft looking for an entry point but didn't find any. They did, however, find what appeared to be portholes. They looked into them. They looked like mirrors until you got close enough and then you could see through them. During a later interview, Nolan remarked the portholes looked like the mirrored sunglasses later became very popular, among, especially among uh, state troopers. Doug Nolan also reported one of the windows that were portholes was busted, though he described the hole as being no bigger than a quarter. And uh, looking through the portholes, the two men saw what they described as two small bodies slumped over what appeared to be a control panel of sorts. According to other witnesses, the craft appeared to be intact, except for a fracture in that one porthole. It was silver in color, circular, and about 100 feet in diameter, with a dome on top. The cabin feature measured 18 feet in diameter. The craft lay on the mesa, tilted due to the hump on the bottom. Later reports placed a number of alien bodies inside the, the craft at 16, though it was reported all were dead. The body count was later revised to just 14. As the two oil workers continued their explorations, other witnesses started arriving. Local ranchers, Mr. and Ms. Knight, ran cattle on, or, on the near, uh, on, ran cattle near the mesa and had driven out to make sure none of their cattle were injured or dead. Later interviews, Nolan remembered the Knights began to lecture the two oil men about getting too close to the craft. And as they discussed uh, the craft and whether or not it was dangerous, heard a very peculiar sound which drew the attention of everybody present. Circling the craft was a helicopter, something none of them had ever seen before. Very unusual helicopter to be present so quickly after a UFO crash and in such a remote area. Remember, this was March of 1948, and Igor Sikorsky had only developed the first mass-produced helicopter in 1944. Clearly, the military was taking the issue of crashed UFOs seriously, and they were prepared to, for crash retrievals even in 1948. For, and using the newest technology they could get their hands on. Well, at this point in time, we've come to the end of today's show. We've run out of time. We're going to continue talking about UFO crashes and um, some of the mysteries that have arisen. Until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.